0: I think philosophy engenders this kind of contemplative mode. You don't think you can accomplish everything by your action. Hmm. And I think that's a really important spiritual posture that we can't make the kingdom come.
1: This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Happy New Year. I am stoked to be bringing you even more interviews in 2023. And I got to say, it's tough balancing commitments, the podcast included, but we keep trekking along and it's encouragement from you that is a key source of the fuel to keep this thing running. Our unique angle of exploring the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, that's what we're striving for. And I hope and pray that this will continue to be a resource for you. All right we are going to get to this first episode. Join me from Calvin University. He is an author. He is a philosopher and a great resource. James K.A. Smith, thanks for doing this. Yeah, good to
0: talk to you, David. Thanks for having me on.
1: So we are uh, pretty fresh off uh, your latest book, How to Inhabit Time. And uh, in this book, you uh, you shed some light on a lot of your, your personal life, including your days as a, a real extreme sports athlete as a kid. Uh, how do you fulfill that void today, uh, later in life?
0: Sadly, I still try to ride my freestyle BMX bike. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) uh, uh, during the pandemic, I bought a reissued 1986 GT pro performer, which was the bike I had when I was in high school. And I get out there and tool around a little bit. Uh, my wife gets a little nervous. I think when she sees this old man out on the bike uh, now, I think I try to satisfy it with skiing uh, and mountain biking. So slightly, slightly more appropriate to my age and and current body.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cross country or downhill?
0: Uh, downhill. Downhill. Absolutely.
1: Still got that thrill.
0: Yes. I need a little speed rush. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: So interesting, too, in this book, uh, you're so vulnerable in why you wrote on this topic to do with uh, some struggles that you had uh, a little bit before this book, uh, some some real depression in your life. Some of the things that you'd experienced while living north of the border. Would you say that this book kind of captures uh, those lessons fully or are there some more that you would hope to share?
0: in this case, it was really the experience of kind of grappling with some sort of family trauma that kind of spurred the 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 hypothesis or thesis of the book, which is, you know, we need to reckon with history in order to live hopefully into the future. And so, um, it is true, this book is, um, it's not your typical sort of philosophy book, that's for sure. Um, but I, I think, as you probably know, St. Augustine, St. Augustine is kind of one of my, um, exemplars and heroes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think in, in his confessions, he so models that kind of vulnerability. And, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that's a way to connect with readers in ways that maybe I haven't before.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you are very, you know, philosophical and, and I think it does maybe, maybe applies more to the, of the layman a little bit. Some of those, some of those vulnerabilities.
0: Yeah, I think I'm, in some ways, I, I think our stories, our testimonies, our stories are still the most powerful witness that we have, right? In other mm-hmm. words, I, I think the the most powerful form of witness is mostly bearing witness to what God has done in your life and how God has been with you through the story. And I think if you want to sort of reach and communicate with your neighbors, It's not so much, you know, launching arguments at them is as it is laying bare your story of what a life with trying to follow Jesus looks like. And I I think that that's a much more humble approach. I think it's um, it's to be in the mode of testimony rather than demonstration. And uh, I think that that is more affecting and and more effective as a communication strategy. I hope.
1: Yeah, one of the big points that you uh, really get across in How to Inhabit Time is this idea that our stories are part of a bigger story and you try to really push against uh, some of the the narrative that can get sort of sprinkled into churches where we look at this moment so fully as like this is, this is our moment. Uh, could you elaborate on why you think that's so important for Christians to see like what you say about grace, that it's not a, a, a reset, but it's just a... A transformation connected to a greater lineage, so to speak?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think part of what I'm trying to sort of explore and lean into in how to inhabit time is what does it mean for us to be creatures, right? To take our creaturehood seriously. And I think one part of taking our creaturehood seriously is to realize that we are these Temporal beings—that is, we live in time. Where we sort of we inhabit history. We are uh, uh, we swim in the flux and flow of an unfolding of history, and and we can't float above it, and we can't get skyhooked out of it. And in that sense, we have to take seriously the fact that who I am today is the product of a past. That I have not only have I lived through, but even a past that has been handed down to me beforehand,, uh, if that makes sense. so that i'm I'm not just the fruit of my decision in any particular moment. I'm like the accumulation of a history that has built up over time, which means that um my past is not just something behind me. My past is actually with me. It's in me. I carry it in a significant way. And I, if I don't reckon with my history and where I've come from, um, I'll never properly understand who I am, which is then why God's salvation and God's grace and God's redemption isn't a reset button, right? God doesn't – What to be in Christ is not to have my past erased. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to actually see that the Spirit takes up all the particularities and messiness and even heartbreak and scars of that history I've lived through and redeems it and renews it and transforms it in such a way that now that's part of the renewed I. It's part of the recreated, resurrected I. And but I still bear the wounds. I still show it's like it's like Jesus' resurrection body, right? The resurrected Jesus points people to his wounds. You know, the legacy of what he endured in history is carried forth into the new creation. And and I think that's what God is doing with all of us.
1: Spiritual heritage, heritage in general, what would you counsel listeners to look to in order to really, uh, as a, a buzzword you use in this book, is discern that?
0: Yeah, I mean first of all, I, I really like your phrasing about this in terms of heritage. So maybe one way of putting it is look, every human being is an is an heir. Every mm. human being is an inheritor, right? We all have a heritage. What we also have to grapple with is sometimes our heritage is has dark, shadowy corners that we would rather ignore, right? Mm. Or that we we turn a blind eye to. So I think. We reckon with our heritage is to say we face the history that we've come from. But when we turn to reckon and face that history we've come from, we're also gratefully receiving gifts that have been handed down to us. And by the way, across generations, do you know what I mean? Like we, we are, we are heirs of gifts that have been passed down from, from uh, uh, people we've never met. So discernment is what you do in the present where you're kind of listening to God's call on your life, having, you know, sort of reckoned with and grappled with, all right, who am I? Where have I come from? What's my story? And therefore given that history, what is God calling me to now? And and that discernment is always contextual. It's always in you know the moment in which we find ourselves and this is something that i think christians are not always very adept at like we we sort of fall into this illusion that we inhabit some kind of static eternity just because we know god but the fact is it because we know god we don't get lifted up into some static eternity god comes and dwells with us in the flux and flow of history that's what the incarnation is about and so when God sends us his spirit to help us discern what we're called to, that means we have to do the hard work of sort of like recognizing our present. We We have to sort of read the signs of the times to say, okay, what is required of us now? What does it look like for us to be faithful now? And that's dynamic. It's not just repeating the same things over and over again.
1: Jamie, what would you say from a philosophical standpoint that Uh, You glean from philosophers when it comes to this element of of being, you know, being creatures uh, because you really lean into hope towards the end of this book, especially with with Advent. You lean a lot into hope that we just, you know, we're awaiting, we're not creating. Uh, But I just noticed that you tend to use like it's almost like they're tools to you that these ideas of philosophers. And I think they're so at peace of just being and they're not even necessarily Christians. But what is kind of get where I'm going with that?
0: Absolutely. So, for me, philosophy is really about a particular way of life. It's okay. not just about certain collections of ideas. And and in its most ancient heritage, philosophy was really about a kind of spiritual pursuit of wisdom, right? We, we should remind your listeners that the definition of philosophy, the two Greek words are phileo and sophia, to love wisdom. Hmm. So, don't think of philosophy so much as being defined by like this department in the university or this certain set of books on the shelf. Think about philosophy as kind of habits of mind and reflection that are really about the pursuit of wisdom. And what, and what that has looked like for philosophers is trying to understand what does a well-lived life look like. Hmm. And so, Socrates famously said, you know, uh, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so, one of the reasons why as a Christian, I think that philosophy is a great gift, is because philosophy is about a set of disciplines and practices and reflection that keeps examining our lives such that we ask ourselves, what does it look like to live a good life, a faithful life, a meaningful life? Now, I do that, obviously, in light of my conviction that Christ is the wisdom of the invisible God, right? Mm-hmm. That, that uh, um, in Christ, the fullness of wisdom is found, but then the same disciplines and practices practices, I think, deepen what discipleship looks like. And, and I it really is kind of my mission. I try to do it in almost all of my books. I, I'm trying to bring some philosophical cookies down to a little lower shelf for the church, because I think our discipleship, and spiritual formation will be richer and deeper and more faithful if we took these philosophical disciplines seriously. Uh, and so, and I, and I just love it. I, I think, you know, you're, you can love God with your mind and this is one way of exercising that.
1: There's like a, a stillness to, to that. And, and that sort of lends itself to uh, you being so at at peace with understanding that the kingdom is coming and it rests on him and you're able to Quiet down. Yeah, that's a a
0: good point. Sorry, I I missed that part of your question too. Right. So there's a sense in which there is, I think, philosophy engenders this kind of contemplative mode hmm. where um, you don't think you can accomplish everything by your action. Hmm. And I think that's a really important spiritual posture that, you know, we can't make the kingdom come. And we don't build the kingdom. We await its arrival and we get caught up in what the spirit is doing to make the kingdom break in and the kingdom come. And I, I think that's um I think that's really important because otherwise uh we get a little too confident in our own ingenuity. We also get burnt out because it turns out we fail in trying to make it arrive. Mm. So there's something about, there's this, this gift of receptivity. And, and I do think you mentioned Advent. I think Advent is, is a season of learning how to wait, but to wait actively, to wait almost a kind of holy impatience, how long, O Lord, is as much a cry of of, uh, the kingdom as, um, you know, Maranatha. So it's living in the tension between those two things.
1: One more point from this book, uh, wouldn't mind touching on a couple other ones that you've written. Uh, I really like the way that you defined shame in light of nostalgia and grace. And I think a lot of that, of like what you're describing right now, this Again, again, this like greater story that we're a part of, and that you know, sh- has, should change our our posture. Uh, but I think it, it runs sort of right in the face of like, the, like the self help narrative that I think is that is just waiting for shame to creep in. Uh, if you don't, you know, kind of get land yourself in this bigger story, what what do you fear could really happen with with shame and self help?
0: I think you're right that. Um, uh, it, it is a curious way that sort of the self-help paradigm almost exacerbates our shame because by definition, everything depends on us. Do you know what I mean? Like we are we are yeah. our only best hope. It's interesting, for example, to see in addiction and recovery conversations that really the key to breaking out of addiction is to turn to a higher power, right? To realize that you're dependent on something outside of yourself. Mm. And I, I think that's an echo of of the gospel in the sense that um, really grace is this scandalous and beautiful promise that I am not left on my own. And that I, it's not up to me. And I, it's not, I'm not dependent only on my own devices, but that there is a gift that comes that, that pulls me and draws me and lifts me and recreates me and renews me. And, uh, it's exactly why then God doesn't want us looking back at our past with shame. He wants to say, this is the story of what I have brought you out of, right? Uh, and this is this is how I'm gathering up the fragments of your history to now make a mosaic that is beautiful in ways that you never, ever could have done yourself. And I, I think that's that should be liberating. But the liberation depends on a liberator outside of myself.
1: Yeah. And I love that, you know, really speaks to what the Apostle Paul lays out in his his letter to the Corinthians that, uh, you know, g- godly sorrow should leave us with no regret. And, and worldly sorrow, there's that regret that's just going to keep, like you say, craning on our necks. Uh, you are what you love. Uh, if we could just spend a little bit of time in that book. And I think this is a very accessible book, too. I uh, just, you really, uh, I think your, your pastor hat uh, comes on in this one quite a bit. But uh, a primary thesis is that you really urge Christians to better understand and see life from the perspective that we're loving beings before thinking beings. And uh, you are what you love, right? I mean, it's kind of right in the title. I'm wondering, how do you think uh, this idea uh, can be shared with non-believers, both in words and in the story that our life tells? Like, that we are loving beings and that is a product of whose we are.
0: Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's a little bit scary because I think um, sometimes we might say and claim that we love Jesus. But the patterns of our lives show that we love something else. Right. Mm-hmm. So so first of all, we should be, we should be attentive. One of the reasons I wrote you are what you love is to realize and to help folks sort of reflect on the ways that there can be a disconnect between what I came to claim to believe. And know, and even what I claim to love, and what I have really learned and formed and been shaped to pursue and chase. And I, I think um, this is one way to make sense of a lot of Christian hypocrisy, honestly, which is we say this is what we believe in love, but then we live like everybody else, chasing stuff or power or or whatever it might be. So I, I think there's a there's a sort of a prophetic side to this taking this seriously. But constructively, uh, I think what it means is one of the most powerful witnesses, again, to use that language we used before, is um, to live a life whose shape is animated by loving God and loving what God loves, is to sort of play out a drama. That pictures the gospel mm-hmm. in ways that you don't have to sort of say something, right? Like, and yeah. and people get curious, right? They're sort of like they notice, you know, uh, wow, your marriage is different, or you you your family spends time, uh, you know, at the homeless shelter every week rather than going to the football game. What's going on there? Do you know? Like, there's a there's a way in which the shape of a life lived becomes its own story that testifies to what we love.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost a bit of a mic drop moment. And as you say that, uh, yeah, I mean, just one of the things, I mean, because in that book, you really sort of take this lens and you say, OK, uh, here are all the rites of passage in, in the life of a Christian. Is that story being told in youth group in Sunday service? And one of them that really stood out to me was in weddings. And I think there's such a, uh, you know, all hands on deck. And then, of course, you want this sermon and you want these vows but then like you know is the is the greater story being told through the nonverbals
0: on the one hand we say uh yeah we want the the right bible passages in the sermon and so on and so forth but then really the entire wedding is about this production right for the sake of consumption and spectacle because We've we've been hoodwinked by the marriage industry, right? The 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 wedding industrial complex convinces us that here's here's the spectacle that has to be created, and we spend a lot more time thinking about a wedding than a marriage. Hmm. And so, uh, whereas it's actually the marriage that is going to be what Paul says is a sacramental illustration of the mystery of Christ in his church. So, we worry about the performative ability of our weddings and don't spend too much time worrying about the faithful um, covenant endeavor that is marriage. And uh, I think that's a sign of one way that we can be sort of malformed by these cultural rhythms and liturgies that we get
1: immersed in. Have there been any particular weddings that you've attended or been part of before that you think have done a really good job telling this story with the nonverbals?
0: Well, I'm, uh, you know, three of my kids got married uh, in the past uh, few years. (laughs) And so I'm jealously sort of thinking about, um, I'm really, really pleased that I feel like our kids' weddings had a different. Ideal that sort of animated them. And that's not because of me. That's because of them. Do you know? So it was, it was much more about. Community, it was about beauty. Uh, a couple of my kids, um, you know, the, their sort of venues for the meal afterwards were art museums because we believe that beauty is uh one of the ways to save the world. And so um uh, you know, the integration of communion into a um, a worship service as a way of kind of uh signaling the communion of a community and what it takes. Uh, you know, no couple can survive as a married couple on their own, right? No, no couple is a self-sustaining unit. You have to be embedded in a wider community. And so um, I've seen lots of, there's also in the book, and you are what you love, I talk about what happens in uh, Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox weddings, which is a really, really powerful picture of locating the couple in the wider body of Christ, which I think is really wonderful.
1: Wow. I got to reread that who's afraid of postmodernism is the other the third book of yours that I've read. I want to read more. Uh, and in this one, you delve with a lot of philosophers. I mean, you, you cite them more than the other two books that I've read. If you're yeah. going
0: to talk about postmodernism, you kind of have
1: to. Do <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a heady. It's kind of, yeah, a little bit of a heads up. It's going to be a heady book in, in some ways, but a very helpful one. And, uh, you argue there's an opportunity for reformation among Christians with this evolution of society, I would say. And, uh, I wonder, you know, we're more post-Christian in Canada than you are in the States, but you're from Canada. Can can you lean into the Canadian context with me and and sort of shed some light as to opportunities for reformation that you see?
0: I don't know how eggheaded this is going to be for your listeners, but but the way I would put it is so postmodernism is a critique of modernity, right? Or modernism. Yeah. And what I would say is especially Protestantism, but Christianity in general, um, was kind of um, unwittingly adopted a lot of modern standpoints that they didn't realize did not ultimately sit well with the gospel. Or maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe another way of putting it is this, I don't think the church took the measure of how much it got into bed with modernity and modernism, and then confused being faithful with being modern. Hmm. So when postmodernism came along as a critique of modernity and modernism, I think that was a gift, because it helped us to realize our complicity with certain structures and systems in in modern society that we should have been more critical of to start with. So in that sense, in a way, the post-Christian kind of context of Canada, which is a lot like the UK, I mean, I, I honestly think Canadians should look more to how Christians are thinking about these dynamics in the UK than they should in the States, because the, the American Canadian divide is huge in this respect. And what, you, what you'll what you see is there can be a way in which the certain sort of dislocation of the church's sort of predominance in society can actually be a gift for the church to recover being the church. Whenever The call was never to be in control. The call was to be faithful. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I think um, the post-Christian context creates a lot of unique opportunity. I mean, I think you probably know this. I, I do think the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor who taught at McGill for a long, long time. I think he he is a Christian philosopher who's also sort of helping people really think through the dynamics of a post-Christian, and in some ways, increasingly post-secular society. Mm-hmm. But I also think that um, there's conversations being modeled in the UK. And and again, I think Canada should look back to the UK. It's funny, when I grew up in Canada in the 70s, when I was a kid in the 70s, um, especially in Ontario, southern Ontario, we were still very much a cultural province of Britain. British television still sort of dominated our airways. There's all these ways in which we still looked. And I, I would say for Christians who want to think carefully about some of these dynamics, it'd be good to rebuild conversations with British uh Christians thinkers uh who I think are are very, very sympathetic to the Canadian situation.
1: Awesome. Appreciate that. Well, wow enriching conversation james k A. smith if you haven't yet pick up his book how to inhabit time that and many more will help you thank you for this time thanks david great to chat with you and if you want to read up on james k A. smith find out where you can get his books head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com podcast next time on culture at the crossroads the hymn amazing grace is one that transcends barriers and time 2023 marks the 250th anniversary since the former slave trader John Newton first penned this. And joining me, we'll have an expert who has both written a book on Newton's life and studied the song deeply too. You are not going to want to miss my conversation with Bruce Hinmarsh from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.